0: Um. Come on, you guys! It's only a little. Giant! A hungry giant.
1: Hungry for a big, honey taste. Big taste, honeycomb. Big taste. Honeycomb, Elizabeth, we have My what is
2: We've got nothing better to do than watch TV and have a couple of rooms. Hey, mahe, 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 SJ, Hotke, Moment, Honanwa, Estongo, Aji welcome to a very special episode of Skoden Cinema. I say this because this month we are hosting, that's right, I said this month, it's actually August, and what do you know, there is an update to the podcast, yeah, that's right, I'm sticking to it, I'm, I'm back, and two episodes in a row, so, but anyway, uh, I, I'm talking about uh, a television party, A, a we're, we're hosting today a, a tribal television party. And I mean, come on, is there any show out there other than the old 90s nugget Saved by the Bell that could possibly better encapsulate that word? Well, this show, uh, you know, uh, Saved by the Bell, it was definitely a part of most of our youths growing up. Um, I mean, the thing was on constantly. It was on, like, multiple channels um, and, and, like, several times a day, and And uh, like a lot of you guys, uh, you know, I grew up watching a lot of American sitcoms. And, you know, as with movies, it was sort of a way for me to, like, you know, comedically or maybe adventurously escape a lot of the real world problems. Um, Especially, like, in middle school and, and, you know, high school, whether it was algebra or your parents fighting or, you know, the terrible school lunches uh, or high school infidelity, you know, you could always switch on, you know, something like the Brady Bunch or Cheers or Different Strokes or Tom Hanks uh, yucking it up on Bus and Buddies or, or Alf. Uh, who could forget Alf? But anyway, you could turn all that on and just kind of, you know, lose all of that, those transgressions, you know, for about a half hour or so. But the problem was that very few... If any of these television shows featured native characters or storylines or themes and god forbid um, if those shows did usually um, natives were portrayed in like this overblown silly caricature you know not at all being an accurate representation and you know if we weren't busy at the time, you know, if we weren't busy, you know, playing the Hollywood Indian, the Stoic Indian, the, the Mystic Indian, uh, we were usually subjective to being the butt uh, of some stupid joke. Um, for instance, um, MeTV was on, I, I watch a lot of MeTV, because that's just kind of what I grew up on, and um, this was about a year or so ago, but Three's Company was on, I think it was MeTV, it may not have been. But anyway, there's this episode of Three's Company, and Mr. Furley uh, was, he once prepared for a poker game by placing his fingers behind his head, you know, to kind of signify feathers. And um, Jack kind of looked at him, and, you know, he goofily said, Poker Honus, you know, and, and that's the joke. Uh, poker haunt us. Um, Hilarious. And then there's the episode of Happy Days, where Pinky Tuscadero, uh, you know, he. She questions much of the chagrin of Fonzie. I may add, uh, so I got to say that. But she questioned Tonto's gender, you know, all because she saw him wearing a feather in his hair. And of course, how could we forget uh, Brad Taylor on Home Improvement, uh, the episode where he once described Aztecs as really cool killers who like to cut people's hearts out. Um. So that's what we dealt with. Um, you know, there's a book that was written by um Philip DeLoria that's called Um Plain Indian and that book came out in, in nineteen ninety eight. And um I was kinda reading through that, um, kind of skimming through that kinda in preparation for this episode. And there's this quote, this little paragraph in there in this book that really kind of stood out to me. Um, and this is you know, from the book. He says, I have seen white, African-American, even Asian-American characters symbolically stand in for indigenous people by performing in red face. They slip in and out of this temporary visual Indianness. And of course, with the act of fantasy, the character always returns to the everyday world. A good example of that would be um, like the Brady Bunch where they meet the little boy who's run away from the reservation and they take him back or he gets lost. It's been a while since I've seen that one. It was like a three-parter. Jay Silver Hills is in it. But anyway, at the end of the episode, you know the Bradys um, are involved with a naming ceremony um, and they get the name the Brady Braves. Um, or you'll see something like Dennis the Menace, the old Jay North uh, show where you know, he's uh, – Dresses up as an Indian for like scouts. Um, I can't like trap trust f- trust finders or pathfinders. It was like his equivalent of a scout, but he's you know hooping and hollering, and he's got face paint on and and all of that stuff. So I mentioned all of that because you know prior to um, today's standards, that's what we dealt with. Um, That's what we had to cling to. That's what we had to um, rely on when it came to our representation on television screens. But it's all about to change, Uh, folks. The days of of Native representation or or misrepresentation or or underrepresentation on the small screen is finally, finally coming to an end because 2021 is our year. Uh, Rest assured, we're making our mark there is a slew of television shows currently out or in production that will finally again finally in 2021 reshape the way um, that we are viewed on television if you haven't seen reservation dogs i almost feel sorry for you at this point because that to me is the the gold standard it's 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 a game changer uh you know, me being Muskogee and it being filmed here, um, in Omogi and and the surrounding area and even in Tulsa and some other places, you know, that is the most accurate representation of Northeast Oklahoma Indians that you will see on TV. Uh, I'm not too proud to admit that, uh, the first episode that I watched, um, I cried. I couldn't believe it. I could not believe that for the very first time, you know, being 46 years old, I finally saw my people speaking my language, doing Muskogee things on a television screen. And it's done in a even that's a comedy, but it's it's done with such respect. Sterling, I I cannot thank you enough. Uh, What what a work of art you have created with that television show. And I cannot wait for uh the episode more episodes to come out, but besides reservation dogs uh there's Rutherford Falls, which is on the Peacock, and that is another brilliant show um I just again it's one of those television shows the very first time I watch it again I just like i can't believe it like these are native characters and they're being native and it's and it's funny you know it's 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 just a very smart um you know piece of television. Um, there is like the teen drama, which looks like a teen drama to me, um, called trickster that is coming out on the WB. Um, we've got spirit Rangers. We have Molly and Denali. Uh, we could go on and on. Um, you know, and that's not even mentioning the countless Canadian television programs out there like moose TV, or, um, I think there's another one called the res, um, up in Canada. And anyway, you know, Canada has been creating tele- Indigenous television for years For years So i always curious, you know, kind of what took the U.S. so long To, to kind of jump on that bandwagon But uh, personally I, I think it has to do a lot with, with just Power and, and control I think they want to control the narrative I, I think that for years They didn't want us to tell their our stories Because they're afraid They're afraid of what we have to say Because deep down they, they know They, they know, um, you know and there's what happened. And I think they're just, like I said, I think they're afraid to to give us any kind of control or any kind of voice. So uh, with that being said, though, I want to try to keep it light. I don't want to get too heavy and get, you know, I'll start getting, getting hot about it. <laughs> but uh, prior to all of those, you know, previously mentioned shows, um, we used to have to settle for television shows like Saved by the Bell. The episode that we're discussing today um, is called "Running Zach." It originally aired on uh, November twenty fourth, nineteen ninety, just in time for Thanksgiving. Hey. Uh, I looked up the TV guide synopsis, since we don't have the, you know the box art and or the the box you know the back of the, the description, the box description or whatever. So all I had to really go on was like an old TV Guide synopsis, and this is what TV Guide had to say. Uh, Zach digs up a Native American in his family tree. Uh, yeah, that, that's that's what it says. And then it says, uh, Chief Henry, Dale Birdie, Miss Wentworth, Carol Lawrence, Lisa, Lark Voorhees, Zach, uh, Mark Paul Gosler. So I'm I'm, I'm going to try not to go completely scotin' cinema on these tribal television party episodes. You know, because mainly, um, let's be honest, it's like 99.9% uh, S.D. Hutt gay actors. And um, not to mention, I'm sure most of you guys are already at least somewhat familiar with the cast. Uh, you know, Mark Paul Gosler, Mario Lopez, Tiffany Amber Thiessen, Dustin Diamond, uh, Elizabeth Berkley, Lark Voorhees... You know some of you savvy watchers out there don't be embarrassed don't be embarrassed. you guys probably remember Dennis Haskins or Ed Alonzo or Leanna Creel or Leah Rimini, and maybe even Tori spelling um, so yeah there's no real need i don't think to to elaborate on them very much because um I know for a fact that there's other podcasts out there that are going to do a much better job you know explaining and going over those filmographies, and I'm going to. And, you know, this is a native-centric show, so I just want to stick with the Stajadis. Um, But I do feel the need to mention, though, um, you know, doing some research on this episode, that Mark Paul, uh, he is not actually 100% Hutkey. Yeah, in fact, his mother is actually Eastern Asian Indian. Uh, She was born and raised in Bali. So, yeah, I bet you didn't know that. So that's your fun fact for today. I bet most of you guys thought that he was uh, uh, all wonder bread, but nope, he's uh, he's honey wheat. <laughs> all right, uh, this episode, um, you know, this is actually a relatively short series. There was only five seasons, and they had like a couple of made-for-TV movies. But but this in this throughout this whole series, this this episode features, to my knowledge, the one and only indigenous character, Chief Henry. Um, who was played by Del Birdie, who was a Chiricahua Apache. Uh, we we briefly mentioned Birdie, um, Dale Birdie, in the Will Sampson episode. And I'm telling you now, if you haven't listened to that one, please pause this one and go download that one. Um, because out of everything that I've done on and Cinema, that that's the one that um, I'm honestly the most proud of. Um, when you listen to it, make sure you leave a five-star review, though, because it really helps the podcast and it makes me feel good about myself. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> but anyway, um, but if you haven't listened um, and you have no idea what I'm talking about, um, Dale Birdie, he, he was the guy um, who kind of pulled a few strings and helped uh, Sonny get into the Houston Medical Center in Texas. Um, It was at that time when Sonny was in like a dire need for a lung transplant. And Bertie made some phone calls and kind of got him, you know, skipped him ahead in the line. Uh, Thank God. So for that, uh, Del Bertie will always be considered a hero to me. Um, You know, those two men, they, they actually met on the set of Vegas where Bertie guested and they formed a friendship. And kind of formed a bond there. So I I couldn't find a whole lot of information out there on Birdie himself um, other than just his internet movie database bio. So I'm just going to kind of go over what I have. But if there's anybody out there that knows um, anything else about him that I'm leaving out, because I know there's going to be a ton, um, or any other sources on Dale Birdie, email me. Let me know um, at scoden underscore cinema at gmail.com. You can also hit me up on Instagram. You can hit me up on Facebook. You can private message me. Um, Yeah, give me a shout because I'm always interested in in learning and hearing these stories. So I'd love to learn more about Dale Birdie. But um, what I have is his backstory kind of begins in Pueblo, Colorado. Um, He came to Los Angeles as a boy and began his journey in the entertainment business writing for radio while he was a student at Los Angeles City College. Uh, he later journeyed to New York and he appeared on Broadway as an actor in such productions as Thank You, Svoboda, Richard III, and The Strong Are Lonely. And I hope I pronounced Svoboda right. I'm not a big musical theater or big big theater person. Not that I don't like it, I just I don't know a lot about it. So anyway... Uh, However, uh, it was the medium of television that he made his strongest and most significant mark. His TV career began way back in 1953, where he played a villain named Mercenus in a science fiction series called Operation Neptune. He, lead, he uh, later made several appearances you know, on the usual TV fair of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Seems like all these guys were on the same shows, but um, he was on like The, uh, the Adventures of Ren 1010. Tin. He was on Gunsmoke. Uh, he was on Vegas. Um, he had a featured role as Vittorio, the ranch foreman, in the 1987 1988 melodrama Buck James. Which star Dennis Weaver, for all you Dennis Weaver fans out there. Um, yeah. He also made some regular appearances though on Bonanza. He was in Simon and Simon, Slap Maxwell, Highway to Heaven. He was in a, a short-lived Fox television series called Werewolf, which I have been dying to revisit. And um he was also on The Rifleman. So yeah, that was a lot of his TV work. In movies. He's probably most remembered as John Eagle. Uh, I wonder if there's any cinematic relation to Tom Eagle from Ghost Dance. And again, if you have not listened to the Ghost Dance episode, the Halloween-centric episode, uh, push pause, go back and, and, and download that episode. And then at the end of it, make sure you leave a five-star review because it helps the podcast and it also makes me feel good about myself. I'm just kidding. Um, but anyway, <laughs> but he, he played John Eagle in the Chuck Norris Christmas classic Invasion USA. If you haven't seen that, check it out. And he was also the wise old Indian in the cult uh, 1981 horror classic Wolfen. But honestly, it's his portrayal as the... Loose, totally tubular Chief Henry in Saved by the Bell that I recall him most fondly. And, you know, not to mention that damn million-dollar smile he's constantly flashing in this episode, eh? I mean, seriously, that man's teeth is so white, I'm pretty sure his baby teeth probably went to private school. Um, yeah, that is such a memorable uh, a thing about him. He just has this awesome smile, but about the episode, you know, out of all the TV shows of the 1990s, um, there are few that are as iconic as Saved by the Bell. I mean, um, like I talked about earlier, the show was pretty much inescapable um, throughout its four-season run. It's It still airs in reruns, you know, syndicated reruns today. Uh, you know, growing up, not only did I watch it on Saturday mornings um, before soccer games, it was also on constantly before and after school on TBS and WGN. It was like a, a hour block of, of, say, like two hours a day of that, you know, five days a week, plus the Saturday show. It was unavoidable. You couldn't go anywhere without, without you know, flipping the channels and, and running into it. And then it was so prominent, you know, growing up for a lot of us that entire generations of fans can probably quote entire episodes from memory without even really trying. But... Despite the the Trapper Keeper aesthetics and and Zach Morris' totally awesome L.A., you know, white L.A. gear high tops that uh, identify it as this undeniable product of the 1990s. Um, Entertainment-wise, the show, I've got to be honest with you, it it holds up surprisingly well. Mostly. Um, You know, every Sunday morning, you know, when we're getting up and around um, the house, my wife, my babies. Um, we will put it on, it's on me TV in the mornings and there's like this two hour block and I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, we're just as amused now as we were back in the nineties. And I, I can't tell it, we begin to tell you how it just all comes back to you when you see these episodes, <laughs> like I could tell you the jokes, uh, the, the, the timing, the, the comedy the spots, uh, the, the, you know, the, all the little gimmicks that are, that are. Gonna happen, I, I can tell you exactly what, what it's going down. So whether it's you know Lisa racking up credit card debt on her dad's American Express or or, or Zach getting sad about that damn oily duck, uh, there's just a few episodes that would not work in our modern area. Uh, modern area, excuse me, our modern era. <laughs> You know, from dubious addictions to truck stop speed or or Zack's ill-advised attempt at sneaking into the girls' locker room to snap a few pictures for a Bayside calendar. Uh, Criminal. Uh, Perhaps the most egregious episode of the entire series occurs in Season 2, Episode 13, called Running Zack. Uh, That's right, y'all. Just three days after the release of Dances with Wolves, you guys know that movie, the movie that made all of America go native. uh, It comes this inspiring story of young Zachary Morris learning that racist stereotypes are bad, that death is a part of life and that we all deserve a second chance to make things right. It's also one of the few episodes that actually addresses the fact that Zach is essentially a terrible dim-witted human being, but it shows him trying to improve himself, um, so there's that his mythology, a uh, mythology <laughs> I'm having a hard time talking today. Um, his methodology though in the episode um, it does leave a quite you know quite a bit to be desired, but be patient, I promise we'll, we'll get there. Um on one hand you know there are many individual pieces of the episode that feel like they sort of kind of work and could actually be relevant to, to you know, today's more social uh, conscience audience, the, the woke folks, as, as I'm told they're called. Um, you know, like like Jesse in the episode, there's a B story where Jesse's, you know, grappling with white guilt um, over finding out that her ancestors were slave traders. And the whole episode, she's like hounding Lisa to forgive her of her family's sins. Um, and, but it's just the way that the writers kind of chose to address this super heavy idea, however, um, that will kind of leave you diving for the remote. Uh, another positive footnote, though, the depiction of Chief Henry. It does put a couple of door dings in the old stereotypical Native American television image that was held by Zach himself and, and probably most of the viewing audience, to be honest, at that time. Um, it appears that, you know, they they tried to th- think it out, um, even though they had him, you know, living in this dilapidated art studio. But again, we'll get there in just a minute. So um, but on the flip side of that, you have Zach showing up in Buckskins. Um, he's holding this cheap toy tomahawk. He's got lipstick face paint on his face. He's got this, you know, Silver Dollar City uh, souvenir war bonnet on. Um, he identifies himself as Running Zach because he's on the track team, get it? And he delivers his class presentation with his arms folded in like this stern, um, cliched, monotone, uh, you know, it's it's just, it's very let's just say it's it's less than idealic, you know in today's more culturally aware c- climate um it'd be tough to imagine this story evolving in quite the same way you know especially given that while zack morris the character you know is revealed to have native ancestry mark paul gossler the actor does not so no matter how well-intentioned the show was trying to be, um, the bottom line, you know, having Gossler appear in red face was just a horrible, horrible decision. And in fact, um, in interviews even as recent as 2020, Gossler himself actually agrees. There's this really stellar podcast called Zack to the Future that was created by the same guy who did um, Zack Morris's Trash. I think you guys probably have heard of those little inter- or those little YouTube uh, clips, but it's the same guy. He does this. He hosts this podcast called Zack to the Future, and they kind of basically he and Mark Paul um, break down every single episode um, of the show, and they kind of have little insights and little antidotes, and Mark Paul kind of recalls you know um, little tidbits on on the production. But anyway on that on there's an episode on on running Zach, um Mark Paul the actor, he, you know he admitted that he cringes while watching you know some of his old appearances on the show, and to my surprise, you know he actually addressed this particular moment in the episode, um, and he says, quote, "I cringe seeing myself portraying a white dude being Zach Morris, who is like the all american blonde haired white dude in an Indian Native American headdress." Well, I actually cringed when he said "Indian Native American headdress," but that's neither here nor there. Um, he went on to say, uh, "This is one of those that I don't, I don't like. Remember putting on the headdress?" He said on the podcast, uh, "I don't remember putting the face paint on. I don't remember standing in that very awkward way that I was standing, where my arms are folded in like this very stereotypical way." Um, and then we fir- he goes on in the episode to firmly state that the mistakes made. And running Zach would definitely not be made today. Um, He says, "There are protocols in place and filters that, you know, like a director standards and practices um, were much more sensitive now for good reason. And those things would not happen today. Like this episode would never get made in current times, and rightly so." End quote. Um, Gosler even went on to question, you know, some similar sensitive topics on his current show, um, mixed dish, which is actually pretty funny. If you, I, I've caught a few episodes and it's pretty funny. Um, he p- portrays Paul Johnson. Um, he's like this mixed race couple. Um, anyway, uh, but he plays Paul Johnson, uh, alongside his, his co-star named Tika Sumter and Tracy Ellis Ross. They're like this mixed race, um, couple, but anyway, Um, He says on there, you know, there are times where we're like, um, are we sure we're allowed to do this? I mean, is this appropriate? And I have to be assured that the writers and the executive producers and everyone behind the scenes has gone through the blender to make sure that we are not being offensive for offensive sake. Um, So, yeah, if you want to hear his whole take on the episode that I'm going to talk about, go download it on Apple and Spotify podcast. Um, It's a really interesting commentary on how people, especially in Hollywood, you know, viewed Indian people at that time. I mean, all they knew about us was what they saw growing up, what was on movies and television portrayals. Um, the episode even features Tatanka Means. Um, he's adding his um, all, all too often um, hilarious, insightful observations as well. You know, and after I listened uh, to the episode, you know, I, I truly do get the feeling that Gosler um, has a lot of remorse over the choices that were made. Um, he makes the argument, you know, that I, I was just a 16 year old kid, and I was just doing what the director was telling him to do, you know, even though he doesn't, you know, recall um, doing it. But I'm sure that was, you know, the man, you know, tells you what to do at that age, you're going to do it. You know what I mean? So, so uh, I, I certainly wish uh, the writers and, and directors and producers that he referred to um, in that quote were more aware then, um, because Running Zack was written by a staff writer named Jeffrey J. Sachs, who was pretty much on board for the entire series. He. he including the college years and the new class. He, he wrote all the episodes for those as well. Um, he went on to write another teen series, which was basically like saved by the bell on a basketball court in 1995 called hang time. Um, the episode, um, running Zach was directed by Don Barn, Barnhart. He directed 81 episodes of, of the series and he also did the Hawaiian style, the TV movie, and he also did 91 episodes of The New Class, and then he also did 38 episodes of California Dreams, which I don't know if you guys remember that or not, it was more like Saved by the Bell, but they were in a band, and I don't, and I don't mean the Zack attack, it was like a band called California Dreams. But after rewatching this episode numerous times for the podcast, um, I, I highly doubt that any... Of The upper echelon brass at NBC ever spent any time researching or studying native culture or traditions. And I, I, I honestly, I, I really feel like the writers just all got into a room and they sat down and they got out their legal pads and they were like let's let's make a list of everything that we know about native culture um, from whether it was John Wayne movies or whether it was dime store novels or whether it was comic books or or whatever let's let's make a checklist of everything that we that we know or what we think we know and let's just spitball it from there because they cram a lot of garbage into this episode. But anyway, um, say by the bell, um, you know, after season one, um, it appeared to be uh, following your usual sitcom trajectory um, where, you know, they're not really they don't have to rely on character development to tell stories anymore because we've already got those well established um, At this point, you know, season two or season three, they just sort of start throwing the kids into these outlandish plot situations where they have to react not as people, but as caricatures of themselves. So um, at this point in the series, you know, A.C. Slater becomes like the one dimensional chauvinistic, you know, jock. And Jesse has to rely on like her flimsy activist bullshit. And Lisa is like this trust fund fashionista and screech. Oh, he he, he, <laughs> he never really had a character to begin with, did he? I mean, so what's the go-to for this episode? Um, shockingly, this episode is all about cultural ancestry and coming to terms with our past and understanding our future. Well, the episode begins with like uh, all the usual hustle and bustle at the Max and. Uh, The gang sort of enters the malt shop, and they're all attired in matching track suits. Apparently, they're all on the track team, (laughs) except for Kelly, who is like the lone cheerleader. Um, And I put in my notes, for track and field, do they have cheerleaders for track and field? And then you have Screech, so Kelly and Screech are the only ones um, not on the track team. I guess they left Screech out of the sport because he's a nerd, but honestly, his lanky, lean physique—it leans way more to the track kids that I knew uh, growing up in high school than anyone else on this show does. But along with a few unknown extras, and there's one um, really awesome spikely, mooky, slash Do the Right Thing look alike. Um, they're all like heralding the name like Zack, Zach, 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 Zach. Uh, Kelly, as per usual, she compliments Zach on, on, on his track meet accomplishment and gives him this admiring smooch on the cheek. And then this very confident Zach Morris jokingly asks, like, "Oh, it's all about symmetry or something." Can I have another one? And um, you know, because symmet- symmet- symmetrical sexual ex- ex- advancements are, are funny, right? So, so he has to make that joke. But uh, anyway, the gang retreats to their the normal booth at the Max, and continue with the accolades as Slater professes, "You know, I've never seen anyone run the mile quite like that, preppy." So the setup gets rolling pretty quick here um, with with Kelly assuring that, you know, as long as we have Zach and he keeps that mile run pace, that's a guaranteed success um, against Valley, their their hated, um, you know, arch rival. Uh, So they're having this track meet next week and and, um, Zach is like uh, the only person that can, 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 you know, win it for him. Um, so we as audience, we sort of now know what's on the line, which which begs the question, before I even get on there, because I was thinking about that as I was talking, why is Zach the linchpin to ultimate victory here? You know, there. correct me if I'm wrong, I was just watching the Olympics, and there are a lot of other events, correct? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you got shot put, you've got sprints, you've got hurdles, long jump, pole vault, etc., uh, why is that mile run the deciding factor on whether or not they clinch the whole meat? Um, but hey, there there's gonna be a lot of whys in this episode. So uh, let's let's not go uh too too off too off the rails here. So anyway, the Motley crew they kind of began to order a round of celebratory cheeseburgers. Um, Lisa reminds them Um, that, hey, I can't stay long because she has to get home to go work on a family tree project for Miss Wentworth's class. Now, some of you guys may remember Miss Wentworth. Remember, she's that minxy cougar that that wanted to jump Zach's bones on the subliminal brainwashing episode, the Zach tapes. Um, If I say uh, the blonde Tom Cruise, does that ring any bells on that episode? But anyway... um, When pressed by Kelly, if she found out anything interesting, Lisa just casually drops the old, um, yeah, my ancestors came over on a slave ship. Oh, my God. What a terrible thing to just nonchalantly say. Um, You would think that that would something like that would silence a room. But everyone just kind of looks around and kind of uncomfortably nods or, or like um, very like um, assuredly nods like, you know, I'm so sorry. You know, they kind of nod and, and, and like that. And then you have Jesse, who is the wokest. I like saying that word wokest. It makes me feel young. Um, the wokest character on Saturday morning television history. You know, she seems to be the only one actually troubled by this declaration, which she immediately says to Lisa. I'm so sorry. That's terrible. Uh, But again, Lisa kind of unceremoniously chimes in with, yeah, it's okay. It's no big deal, right? Um, She goes on to kind of regale the brave tale of him, um, you know, being able to break free from his oppressor and return home where he helped other slaves escape as well. Um, I assume because of all of this, it makes the pill of anger and resentment just a a little sugar-coated and a bit easier to swallow. But the notion that Saved by the Bell is attempting to tackle two of America's most shameful, disgusting genocides in, a tw- in one 20-minute episode is, is a very daunting task. And one I, I don't think they should have touched to begin with um, – but anyway, um, <laughs> not to be outdone, um, I'm going to kind of move forward here. Uh, Slater interjects a story about his grandfather, um, his great-grandfather, excuse me, that he's brave. He's like this famous matador. I am so sorry, Chabon, but comparing to compared to Lisa, your grandfather really ain't all that brave, dude. I mean, seriously. I'm not taking anything away from matadors or bullfighters, but... That's not even close to the same thing. (laughs) And even with that, like with Slater being like the lone Hispanic character, what else would they have his grandfather be? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't have him fighting alongside, you know, uh, Che Guevara in the revolution. Um, But anyway, when Jesse tries to avoid telling the gang about her ancestors, you know, dealing in slave labor, she quickly diffuses the situation. By saying, well, they're just all dead. Uh, to long dead is what she says. Like, oh, they're dead. Long dead. And Screech, ever the effing idiot, responds, "Oh, that's so sad. He, like, pretends to cry. Um, I have to say, uh, I'm going to just get this out of here and I'm not going to say anything else again. <laughs> Screech is one of the most annoying characters to ever grace our living rooms. Um, and that that's saying a lot because there's a lot of annoying characters out there. For the life of me, I can I could never figure out why they even hang out with him. All they really do is like victimize him or they use him. Um he's like this Enigma wrapped in a riddle wrapped in like the, the zany shirt. He's supposedly the smartest kid at Bayside, but he's also the biggest idiot. And they turn up the idiocy notch on this episode for sure, because it's finally time for Zack to tell us all about his ancestors. Of course, he, you know, smugly and goofily replies, I don't know, what, Adam and Eve? And Screech, unfamiliar with how to carry on a conversation with rational human beings, exclaims, I
0: didn't know Adam and Eve's last
2: name was Morris. (laughs) Alright, see what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, the scene transitions to Zack and Screech, and they're, like, digging through this old steamer trunk, conveniently placed at the foot of Zack's bed. Among the items in said trunk is this old photo of an Indian on horseback. And Zach calls Screech over to look at what he found. Seeing the long hair, Screech says, Oh, it's like my Aunt Hannah, only she has thicker sideburns. Really? Really? Oh, hold on, because it gets worse. You know, I remember my mom telling me stories
0: about a distant Indian relative? Oh, my mom tells me stories about four-eyed monsters hiding in my closet. They should see a doctor's Zach.
2: They're not there. <laughs> what the living F, NBC? What is he trying to say? I mean, you can only take that a couple of ways, right? I mean, is, is he really trying to say native people no longer exist? Uh, or even worse, that we never existed to begin with? Is he saying that hundreds of years of culture, sovereignty, language, and survival doesn't exist? Is his Aunt Hannah supposed to, you know, look like this native warrior? What is the friggin' joke here exactly? Oh, it's a racist thing. Got it. Now, this is precisely why we're fighting for representation in today's climates. You know, even by nineteen ninety standards, this is not a good look. And remember, this show continues to be broadcast to the same demographic as it in 2021 as it did back in, you know, 1990s. Kids all over the world um, could be watching this and, and they're taking what they see at face value. So that's why shows like Reservation Dogs are so important. You
0: know, I bet this Indian could be my ancestor. And it's perfect for my family tree presentation. Hey, and you can help me be an Indian. How?
2: That's a good start. Yep, after glancing at that picture for all of about three seconds... And with absolutely no precedent at all, Zach concludes that this must be his ancestor and it's going to be perfect for his family tree presentation. He explains that his mother used to tell him stories about how he had Native American blood in his genealogy. We as viewers have never heard those stories. We've never heard Zach mention any of that in prior episodes. Either way, Finding the picture, hearing the stories, that's good enough for Zach to base his half ass report on. And again, this is roughly the same rationale given by these so called pretendians uh, like Ward Churchill or Elizabeth Warren and Johnny Depp. You know, claiming native ancestry based on this hypothetical ancestor in one's family lore is common. And if a kid is lazy and doesn't do his homework, you know, they could easily seize on such a story for a class report. And if they're any lazier, you know, they could simply run with the idea and literally make up anything they wanted to while proclaiming it as the truth. So I'm hoping that I'm kind of showing you um, why you should never do that. Um, You know, I've even heard discussions stating clearly, you know, Zach is Nordic or Anglo-Saxon or Aryan and that there's no possible way he could be native. But basing his heritage on his features alone, you know, blonde hair, you know, blue eyes or, or brown eyes or whatever he has, you know, that's equally comparable to what we think Zach does when he finds the photo. I mean, he didn't declare himself to be native because of one ancestor, he just said he heard his mother mention it. And, you know, having this television show, which is based in California, it's certainly plausible that, you know, that he could have a distant native ancestor in his family. Um, he just didn't do the legwork. So I'm not by no means, you know, defending this episode, but I'm just trying to make some sort of sense to all of it. You know, either way, Zach requests Screech. um, for his help, which brought the second helping of hot garbage to the table. Really? How? Oh, that's a good start. How? Yeah. We're literally three minutes into this episode, and I can feel myself getting really stretched here. Um, Let's talk really quick about the picture that Zach found, though. Um, I'm assuming that the art director, John Gillis, just sort of found some random picture that they thought would look good on television you know, for the show. And I'm also assuming that Gillis... You know, would have no idea that 30 years later someone would actually do the research on it for a rinky dink podcast <laughs> called Scoden Cinema. So we're here and let's discuss it, all right? What you are actually looking at in that episode, um, the, the person in the photograph, is a very important elder in Native history. Turns out the man in the photograph is the Nez Perce leader named Looking Glass. During the Nez Perce War, Looking Glass was one of the war chiefs who helped lead and protect the Nez Perce people during their long and withering flight to freedom across the Canadian border in 1877. So in preparation for this episode, I read the book about Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce War called I Will Fight No More Forever by Merrill D. Beale. And it is a fantastic Very insightful book, and so all the information that you get ready to hear, I'm going to summarize it, came from this book that um, I have. There's so much more to the story. This could be a multiple episode, (laughs) Um, but I'm going to kind of give you the overall, um, you know, Reader's Digest version. But if you ever want to know more about it, check out that book. Um, It's fantastic. I picked it up on eBay for like three bucks, so it's out there. Check it out. In the early days, um, he was known to his people as, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right for all you Nez Perce out there, um, Alalemia Takinen. Um, he was thought to be born around 1832 in what is now um, Western Montana. Uh, he was the son of a prominent Nez Perce chief named Flint Necklace. Um, he was known by the white people, though, as Looking Glass, and he was one of the, the guys who had, or one of the the, the chiefs. Who signed the Walla Walla Treaty of 1855, which essentially um, ceded the Cayuse, the Umatilla, Nez Perce, the Walla Walla Indian land to the United States government. And the only reason that they did that was um, they thought that um, if they signed it, that they were going to be awarded like a million acres of land and they'd be left alone. Of course, um, we all know what happens when it comes to treaties. Um. Uh, anyway, uh, its signage, though, uh, triggered a major war between many Oregon and Washington tribes and the U.S. government. The Walla Walla Council and the treaty that created the reservation um, has significant implications still today for the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, um, guaranteeing the tribe's legal status and its government-to-government relationship with the United States. But anyway, uh, moving on. Um, Accounts of Looking Glass's ferocious fighting in battles are legendary. Uh, He was respected for his bravery and leadership. And in uh, 1874... A young Looking Glass aided his allies, the Mountain Crows, to defeat a Lakota war party along the Yellowstone River in Montana. Although he bitterly resented white encroachments on his ancestral lands, Looking Glass opposed going to war with the United States over its plans to force his people onto the small Lapwai Indian Reservation in Idaho. Living with his people in a small, isolated village of about eleven lodges called uh, Kamnaka on the Lapwai Reservation, Uh, he and you know attempted to demonstrate neutrality and keep out of the conflict between the non-treaty Nez Perce bands and the U.S. government. Um, When we say non-treaty Nez Perce bands and treaty. Indians, what we're basically referring to as non-treaty were the traditional Nez Perce and the treaty band was the, the the band that had converted to Christianity. Um, so that's basically um, what, what I'm talking about there. Um, again, it's a whole long story. But um, he publicly uh, looking glass publicly rejected war. And he, he honestly believed that the whites would just leave him alone because of that fact. Um, you know, it's kind of like bees. Don't don't bother them. They won't bother you. Um, so looking glass as people at that time were mainly farmers and dairymen. And U.S. General Oliver Howard was at first convinced that looking glass would not be a factor in any conflict involving the United States. He soon changed his perception, however, when he began to receive these ups, uh, unsubstantiated reports that Looking Glass's Nez Perce people had left the reservation and were attacking white settlements while inciting other Nez Perce to join the militant non-treaty bands. All of this, of course, was hearsay. And the truth is, what he heard was that these white settlers had illegally moved on to Nez Perce land and they brought their, their livestock and their pigs had gotten into, uh, got gotten out of the pen and had gotten into, you know, looking Glass's crops and destroyed a lot of his crops. And they were angry about that. And so what did they do? They went over to the white, um, you know, uh, house and they tore They tore the fence down they they were mad And they tore the fence completely out So that Was what he was saying You know that they were attacking white settlements When all they were doing is they were mad Because their pigs had dug Up and destroyed their crops and so they went And you know kicked their fence over basically So at The end of June um, based on That General Howard um, Issued orders to arrest Looking glass his band, and any other Indians living near the village between the forks of Clear Creek. Their objective was to disable the effectiveness the effectiveness of as possible combatants, which basically meant let's round up and imprison innocent people. Um, it was when Howard ordered Captain Stephen Whipple to arrest Looking Glass that proved to be the most costly of all the mistakes that they made. Um, the bounty intensified the conflict with the non treaty Nez Perce and produced disastrous consequences for the army, as well as for the chief and, the, and his people. Um, Captain Whipple was selected to take a cavalry armed with Gatling guns to arrest Looking Glass and all the other Indians near the fort. They were going to detain them and they were going to relocate them to the town of Mount Idaho. Well, Whipple departed Fort Walla Walla with two companies of First Cavalry, um, consisted of four officers and sixty-two men, and the the cavalry, uh, Whipple and his cavalry, traveled all night, and they were intending to surprise attack slash ambush the village at dawn. While the people were defenseless in sleep, and that is a routine um, army tactic commonly and uh, I might admit cowardly used against Native Americans at that time, you know especially against small secluded camps. However, um, they were delayed owing to Whipple not being able to read a map correctly, and he accidentally led his army into a harsh mountainous landscape and they also found out that the camp was much further away than they had previously expected. So the plan was foiled. They did not arrive at dawn. Um, Captain Whipple and his command, when they got there, they arrived to discover that the Nez Perce were, were already up and they were busy with their daily schedule. So they halted at the summit of the hill, about a quarter mile west of the village, looking down on the camps, and that's when the troops... ...announced their presence. In the early hours of a July 1877 morning, the people at Looking Glasses Village were going on about their usual morning activities. Some of the people had gone into uh, Kamiya to attend a dreamer service. Uh, Less than 20 men of fighting age occupied the camp, which also contained about 120 children, women, and elders... Lookingglass calmly sat in his lodge eating breakfast. The soldiers were in possession of the high ground across from Looking Glass's village on Clear Creek. Alerted to the soldiers, he sent Pio Pio Thoklet to tell them that he wanted no trouble, um, that his people were peaceful and wanted to be left alone. So the warrior rode across Clear Creek and met Captain Whipple. Captain uh, William William Winters, um, Lieutenant Sevier Rains, and a volunteer interpreter, who were all mounted. Um, the enlisted cavalrymen, meanwhile, had dismounted and spread out, um, leaving their horses on a flat of the hill to their rear. After the warrior delivered Looking Glass's first message, he was ordered to return and bring back the chief. However, Looking Glass distrust, distrusted the officers, so he dispatched Pio Pio Folkhead again with another man under a white flag of truce. Whipple was told that Looking Glass's people they didn't want war; that they only wanted peace, and that they had come to the Lapwai Reservation to escape war. Whipple was asked to leave in peace and not enter the village. However, Whipple, through the interpreter, demanded to see the chief, and rode across the creek to his lodge. And I know this might start getting a little wordy here, but I also have to mention what a badass P.O.P.O. Folkhead was. Uh, There's this interview that I found on the People's Plateau web portal. Um, They were speaking with his great-grandson, Leroy Seth, and he was telling uh, this awesome story of him clashing with, and he ran off members of a Ku Klux Klan party. Uh, You have to look it up and hear that story. It is unbelievable. Well, the first attack on Looking Glass' camp occurred when Whipple and the interpreter uh, approached the lodge, and a shot rang out from the cavalry's position. The bullet raced toward the village and ripped into the flesh of an innocent villager. So with that, the officers spun their horses and gutlessly sprinted back across the creek to the safety of the army's position, Um, While a deadly barrage of enemy fire tore into the camp, ripping through teepees, wounding horses and people, and creating general terror among the tribesmen. The terrified men, women, and children, uh, looking glass among them, um, they all raced to escape the soldiers' bullets because they were just sort of sitting ducks at that point. They sprinted into the bushes and trees, some up into the hills, um, others along the riverbank, just trying to find any place they could to hide from certain death. Before long, though, uh, the firing diminished as the soldiers moved down the hillside, waded through the creek, and attacked the village. Uh, The troopers then resumed their firing into the teepees, um, and the remaining unarmed people commenced running for their lives. Uh, Once the surviving Indians had evacuated the camp, the soldiers then began to ransack the village. They stole whatever they wanted, and they began to burn down the dwellings. So, despite their uh, delayed arrival, the attack did, in fact, come as a total surprise and received very little return fire as the victims fled. Whipple's brutal attack was just devastating for Looking Glass's people. In the eyes of the United States, because Whipple had arrived late at the village, he had effectually failed in his mission to arrest Looking Glass, capture his people, and escort them as prisoners to Mount Idaho. So the attack on the peaceful band merciless, mercifully, uh, you know, murdered only a few people, but it destroyed the entire village. Absolute furious um, at the treachery of the unwarranted attack and the loss of his village and all of its contents. uh, Chief Looking Glass decided to lead his people to join Chief uh, Whitebird, Chief Joseph and the other non-Treaty Indians on their legendary flight to freedom that would last 4 months and cover 1700 miles the moment looking glass a man respected for his military talent and leadership joined the resistance it created unforeseen complications to the army's plans just the his mere presence you know added legitimacy and hope of success and it ended up uh, drawing more people to the cause um, with which the troops would, um, would have to contend with. Having you know, no prior war experience with the army to draw upon, the naive and peaceful treaty Nez Perce, um, the Christian Nez Perce, believed that they could escape General Howard's forces, that they would be safe from further reprisals. What they did not understand nor even realize was they were now at war with the entire United States Army. Just a few weeks later, the Nez Perce leaders all met in council. Despite Chief Joseph's opposition, Looking Glass convinced the majority of the chiefs that their only option was to flee and join their allies, the Mountain Crow, to the east. Looking Glass was chosen as war command, and the Nez Perce commenced their flight. They chose a different route through the wilderness on the Lolo Trail. With women, children, sick, wounded, elderly, and a herd of about 3,000 horses, the Nez Perce made their way through the most difficult parts of the route, um, hand-carrying the frail around through fallen trees, rocks, and brambles. The Nez Perce passed over the mountains into Montana, where they found their way blocked by a hastily fabricated battlement, Fort Missoula. Um, It was just basically built to ensnare them. The fort was assembled and manned with a handful of soldiers and approximately two hundred volunteers from the surrounding area. It was commanded by Captain Charles Ron. Looking glass, Whitebird, and Joseph rode ahead of the main body of Indians to try to negotiate a safe passage with the commander. They had explained that their quarrel was with General Howard, and they meant no harm to the people of the area. It's noted too that they uh, that most of the volunteers um, you know man uh, stationed excuse me at the um, fort there um, were volunteers from previous excursions through the area to hunt buffalo. Um, Captains Ron's orders were clear; he was there to hold the Indians back until General Howard could engage them, but the frightened volunteers feared danger to their families, and they all quickly fled to their homes which basically left Captain Ron and about 30 men to stop the band. So the Nez Perce seeing that just simply skirted the fortifications and just continued on their way. Looking Glass persuaded uh, persuaded the party, though, to stop and rest at Big Hole, where he believed they would be free from attack. Meanwhile, uh, Colonel John Gibbon um, had received orders from General Howard to assemble forces and overtake them. So with 200 men, um, he arrived at Big Hole and prepared a surprise attack on the Indians. At dawn on August 9th, he and his soldiers advanced upon the Nez Perce, sleeping in their camp. The sound of a rifle shot woke and alarmed the sleeping natives. Warriors and their families scrambled out of their teepees, some forgetting their guns to find cover. The soldiers shot into the teepees. The elderly, the wounded, the women, the children, they were all shot down while attempting to flee. Many people were slaughtered. They were shot at close range, um, you know, such close range that uh, their clothing and flesh were seared from uh, gunpowder. Women and children and babies were massacred, being shot or blungeoned to death with rifle butts. With all the Indians apparently dead or dying, the soldiers then turned their attention to looting the teepees and again trying to set them on fire. But the dwellings were wet with morning dew and they wouldn't burn. The warriors who escaped the initial attack rallied to form a skirmish line that advanced and fired upon the distracted soldiers. More Indians that had fled in the initial confusion were now returning and firing from varied positions into the main body of troops. The Nez Perce's steadfast advancements forced the soldiers from the camp and into the trees where they began to mount their defense. The old chief Whitebird led the surviving warriors in a counterattack. The soldiers were overwhelmed uh, in their, uh, excuse me, <laughs> the uh, soldiers were overwhelmed in their defensive positions. Um, they were surrounded by expert Indian marksmen. Attempts by Colonel Gibbon to break the siege were unsuccessful. A mountain howitzer was brought up, but the Indians captured it and a pack horse loaded with ammunition. The Nespers continued their siege of Colonel Gibbon and the men all day. Gibbons was short of water, food, and ammunition for his men. He had lost 29 soldiers and 40 more, including himself, were wounded. In the fading light of the evening, General Howard and his cavalry finally arrived, forcing the Nez Perce to break off the fight and fall back. General Howard and Colonel Gibbon prepared their report and listed 89 Nez Perce dead. Two warrior leaders, Rainbow, and five wounds were killed. The remainder in the arm- Army's count were women and children. That was the statistic conveniently left out of the report. Following the Battle of Big Hole, Looking Glass lost much of his prestige as a war chief and military leader for his costly mistake of stopping to rest, and he was replaced by War Chief Hatoto, Lean Elk, and the Administrative Chief Joseph. As the Nez Perce continued their retreat, they took their wounded and their dead. Once a safe distance was reached, they buried their lost relations. Nez Perce warriors never willingly left their dead or wounded behind. Common belief held that what befalls the body in this life is carried to the next, the Nez Perce people were told by the spirits of their near relatives to treat the whites humanely, not to mutilate the bodies and render them helpless against hostile Indians in the next world, as that was common practice to the Plains. When General Howard allowed his Bannock scouts to dig up the Nez Perce dead to mutilate and scalp the bodies, he earned the internal damnation of the Nez Perce. The Nez Perce had managed to elude Howard's forces despite great odds. The tactics thus used thus far were those of such leaders as Tulhulhulzot, White Bird, Rainbow, Olicut, Five Wounds, and Red Owl. The Indians were on the run, fleeing through Yellowstone toward Montana to join their old ally, the Mountain Crow. General Howard's forces were a day behind. The Nez Perce were in unfamiliar territory at this point and unsure of the way to Mountain Crow lands. They had no choice but to stop and rest their wounded and feeble. A daring night raid on the pursuing army's horses bought them some time and captured a prospector to serve as their guide. A warrior rode ahead, hoping to enlist the help of the crow, or at least obtain their permission to enter their lands. However, fearing reprisal from the army, the mountain crow steadfastly refused. Upon the warrior's return, the chief decided the only hope was to cut north and make for Canada through the mountains, to hopefully live among the Sioux under Sitting Bull, who had been there since the end of the Battle of the Little Bighorn campaign the year before. Fighting several skirmishes against the better-armed and more numerous soldiers, the Nez Perce crossed the Missouri River in northern Montana on September 23rd. By late September, the exhausted band of refugees struggled to cover the last 40 miles to the Canadian border. Unable to go any further, and hoping that they had outlasted and outwitted General Howard and his troops, they stopped to rest near Bear Paw Mountain. With no blue coats in sight and suffering from exposure, hunger, and exhaustion, they prepared for the final push into Canada. General Howard, however, had already gotten word to General Nelson Miles and ordered him to intercept the Indians before they reached Canada. General Miles and his 7th Cavalry force-marched 185 miles and cornered the natives on September 30th. Nespert's scouts spotted Miles' force moving up, but they did not have enough time to escape, so they concealed themselves in the rocks. The cavalry's first charge was decimated by the warriors' rifle fire, and they were forced to retreat. The ensuing battle lasted five days. With freezing weather and no food or blankets, the Nez Perce warriors bravely held off the U.S. troops long enough for some of the Nez Perce to escape into Canada. Under the leadership of White Bird, about 171 men, women, and children escaped and slipped across the border. Looking Glass had to refuse to surrender at Bear Paw Mountain, and set out on October 5, 1877, to join them, but a Cheyenne scout tracked him and killed him. Chief Joseph formally and famously surrendered to General Miles, ending what had already become a famed flight. We all know parts of the speech, but you know here it is: "I am tired of fighting. Our chiefs are killed. Looking Glass is dead. Tahuhuzote is dead." The old men are all dead. It is the young men who say yes or no. He who led the young men, Olikut is dead. It is cold, and we have no blankets. The little children are freezing to death. My people, some of them, have run away to the hills and have no blankets, no food. No one knows where they are, perhaps freezing to death. I want to have time to look for my children and see how many of them I can find. Maybe I shall find them among the dead. Hear me, my chiefs. I am tired, my heart is sick and sad, and from where our son, now stands, I will fight no more forever. Do you think we got any of that here? You know, like an opportunity to talk about the mistreatment, the imprisonment, the murder of Native people by the U.S. government and military? Do we get any kind of lesson at all here? Spoilers? Nope. I know, I probably fried way too much information on these episodes sometimes. But I feel that Looking Glass's story deserves to be told. And when you're attempting to tell a story like this, context is definitely king. So the next time this episode comes around on television, you can impress someone by giving them the real facts about that picture ex casually flicking around in his hand. That ain't Whispering Wind, eh? That's Looking Glass. Well, the episode continues the next day in class where the students are giving their family tree presentations. And we kind of fade into the tail end of Lisa's story where she says, uh, you know, uh, how her, her her relative became a conductor on the Underground Railroad. And uh, Lisa says, um, you know, my family calls the Underground Railroad the original Soul Train. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh... That's a line in in this in this episode, my friends. Lark Voorhees, you can kind of see she sort of breaks character for just a split second and she almost scoffs at the line because what writer ever decide to compare escaping slavery to a to a television dance show? Uh, seriously, um it's one of the few times in the entire series where you can actually, even for a brief moment, read the disdain on the face of an actor. She continues um, to give like this really soft version of the true events of the, uh, you know, the underground railroad. And I, again, I totally get it. I mean, this was a Saturday morning uh, show aimed at preteens and children, and you certainly don't want to get into anything, you know, too heavy. But, Saying that, you know, with that being said, I feel like this entire episode is way too heavy for that audience. I mean, why again are you trying to attempt to cover these American genocides to begin with? I mean, if you think that, um, you know, comparing slavery to Soul Train is uh, uh, going to ruin your day, let me just play you this clip because it's Jesse's turn now. <coughs> Jesse. Let's hear from you next. Yes. My ancestors were seafaring people. They sailed around the world on ships. They were shippers. Okay. Thank you. I'm finished. (laughs) Hey, Jesse,
1: perhaps you could tell us a bit more.
2: Well, they ship tea,
0: spices, people, lumber, that kind of thing. People? My ancestors shipped black
2: people. Slaves, okay? They were slave traders. Lisa, can you ever forgive me? I'm so ashamed. Well, Jesse, you had nothing to do with it. Oh, just say it. You hate me. Unleash those centuries of repressed anger. Jesse, you're being silly. More. I can take it. Thank you, Jesse. You can sit down now. Oh, see, now you hate me, too. I can see it in your voice. Gosh, I'm losing it. Hey, what about the awareness of Miss Wentworth, eh? Uh, She picked right up on the fact that the Spanos were slave traders, and she, like, zeroed right in on it. I mean, she was not going to give Jesse a free pass at all right there. Uh, You know, which actually makes me wonder just what side of the family that she's referring to. Uh, I mean, it's been established that there's no real Mrs. Spano. Um, I mean, as far as I know, she never appears on any episode and is only briefly mentioned in a couple of them. Um, we know that she was married at least once because, uh, you know, remember Jesse got that evil stepbrother. And then her dad, uh, you remember he married some gold digger. At least they thought she was a gold digger. And the gang went to Hawaii, um, you know, where they were all at the wedding or whatever. Um, but the name Spano, um, if I'm not mistaken, um, is either Italian or at least Sicilian. And uh you know although there are no historical saints <coughs> Columbus, <laughs> but as <coughs> excuse me um but as far as research turns up, I really couldn't find any information on any Italian slave ships um I mean honestly, about ninety percent of the slave traders were British Spain Spanish uh, French and, and Dutch. Sorry guys, if you're listening over there um. You know, Italians were were mostly merchant ships, um, which ship spices, teas, dry goods, and, you know, things like she actually mentioned. So um, I guess that it needs to exist because the script needs it to. Um, but she could be talking about her mother's side. Now, I don't know what her maiden name was, so who knows, who knows. Now it's the moment you guys have been waiting for. It's Zach's turn. And let me tell you, within microseconds... <laughs> The episode tailspins into this xenophobic, hackneyed representation of what most young people probably think about Native people. Um, Like I said earlier, it's like the writer sat around and made up a checklist on everything they saw on Indian people in movies, in Western movies. And they just tried to cram it all in. First up, uh, Zach asks Screech if he's ready to help. And he replies in the gruff, mm, ready, Kimo Sabi. Uh I kid you not. And we talked about the Tonto speak in the Legend of the Lone Ranger episode of the podcast, which if you have not heard that episode, push pause on this one, go download that, listen to it, and then make sure you leave a five-star review um, because it helps the podcast and it also helps me make me feel good about myself. Um. I think that episode is kind of wobbly, but it's definitely one I uh, it's 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 one I I recommend you check out if you get a chance. It's it's my first one, so don't be too too harsh on me. But anyway, um, once they approach the podium, Zach and, and Screech um, Screech kind of stands with his eyes crossed and his arms folded. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and check off the list. Tonto speak check. And then stoically standing, uh, you know, looking down his nose, uh, check and check. So here is Zach's family tree presentation. Ready, Screech. Ready, kimosabi.
0: <laughs> After digging through old family papers and pictures, I learned that I'm part American Indian.
2: Yeah, here's the part where he uh, Zach pulls out lipstick out of this brown paper bag and he applies it to Screech's face while the canned laugh for the studio audience echoes. He also hands him like this cheap general store souvenir tomahawk before the mockery continues.
0: I come from a long line of fierce warriors and great hunters. <laughs> they roam the wide open plains in search of their daily food.
1: They're hungry.
0: Mm. Whoa Tonto.
1: Me got a question. What's the name of your tribe?
0: Uh, um the the Cherokee.
1: And where were they located?
0: They lived in the valley. Oh but way far out. <laughs> Past the freeway. <laughs> Burbank, I think. <laughs>
2: oh. Oh. Me hungry screeches practically played the part of Vindran for Zach and the entire class's amusement here. He actually, and I'm not even kidding you. If you've never seen the episode, go to Hulu. It's on there. He actually looks around the class, and he says, me hungry. And when he does that, he's like this apple, and he like hits the apple with this fake tomahawk, and it splits in two. So not only does Screech not understand how to help Zach get a good grade by making a worthwhile contribution to the presentation, but he also assumes that Native Americans were on about the same developmental skill level as, like, prehistoric Neanderthal. I freaking hate this episode <laughs> with a passion. All right. Two more things really quick. Um, you know, I don't feel that Miss Wentworth took the high ground here either because um, she not not only once, but twice referred to Zach as Tonto. And again, as discussed in the Lone Ranger episode, uh, to refer to any native person as Tonto is a huge slur. And number two, if she realized the whole thing was a farce from the get go, why didn't she just shut it down immediately? Uh, by allowing this mockery to continue, she really further strengthened Zach's narrow minded case um, you know, instead of chastising him in front of the the class. Um, but I got to admit, I, I did chuckle a little bit when she asked him what tribe he was from, and he guesses, um, Cherokee? Uh, just being from north northeastern part of Indian Territory, um, you see a lot of Cherokees here, like a lot, a lot. Uh, they're like the go-to tribe when people say they have native ancestors. Um, you can't throw a rock Uh, And, and, you know, hit somebody that's not Cherokee or related to somebody that's Cherokee or know somebody that's Cherokee. Um, So I just hear it time and time again. And, you know, my so-and-so relative was full-blood Cherokee, but they didn't register. They didn't get on the rolls because they were embarrassed. I hear that story at least once a week, Um, you know, and nothing against Cherokees, of course. I'm not going to say anything about that, but I I just kind of found that part relatable uh, uh, for some reason. And, and I kind of chuckled um, to myself because uh, I don't know, I, it just kind of an end joke for me myself personally. But anyway, um, after Miss Wentworth gives Zach this like stern wag of her finger, um, she provides him with an address to a friend of hers that he should go talk to because she thinks that he could probably help him out with his report. So he has this address in his hand, and out the door he goes. And um, I've often wondered, though, about uh, Wentworth and Henry. Um, How do they know each other? Uh, Maybe they met at UCLA. I mean, she obviously studied to become a teacher somewhere. And um, a little later on in the episode, he says that he went to school there. Um, Maybe he's, like, registered as, like, one of these artists in schools program with the state of California. Uh, maybe he's like this semi well known local artist um I however am a firm believer just based on previous uh episodes of wentworth's character I'm a firm believer that she and henry uh she's a snag she's one of Henry's snags um that that's a that's what i think uh but prove me wrong prove me wrong um nah, Eogast. yo EO gas uh I was just uh also wondering about Chief Henry, um, that name. Um, it's stereotypical. Uh, yeah, it, it is uh, for someone who isn't a chief to be called chief. Um, but we, we've seen it time and time again, whether it's Chief Bromden or or, or whatever. Uh, it could just be a nickname. Um, but if that were the only problems with the episode, I would call it a success. But why can't it just be Henry? You know what I mean? Like, why does he have to have that title? Uh, why does he have to be a chief? Uh, Can he just be a person? <laughs> you know, why does he have to have something that labels him as Native American? Um, it just seems like we always have to have that um, in episodes like this or, or shows like this. So, for the sake of this episode, the the Scoden episode, uh, the tribal television party, TV party, I'm not going to call him Chief Henry anymore because reality is most tribes don't have just one person in charge. Uh, we have. You know, like first chief, we have second chief. You know, war chief, council people, Mikos. There's like a slew of people making decisions together within the population. And historically, uh, women also had a lot of say. So, where's the the women in this episode? The native woman. That's right. She she's the crazy ex-wife. But we're jumping ahead. So crossfade to Delberti as Henry. He's clad in a t-shirt and vest. He's got blue jeans on. He's got a Dodger cap. His, his hair's unbraided. He's wearing glasses, and he's kind of busy in himself, like, over this workbench. And, you know, it would have been so easy to have him, you know, living in this furnished apartment, you know, this, uh, or God forbid, even actual home. But he's living in, like, this derelict studio or, or, or workshop. It's not... Clear what kind of space it is. There's like a couch, there's like a workbench, there's like a a table, there's like blankets on it. Uh, (laughs) It doesn't even have a bed, for Christ's sakes, no bed. So running down the the checklist here, um, Indians live in poverty. So let's check that off our list, okay? But let me shine a little positivity here. Um I can't express how much I appreciate the costume design of Henry. Um yeah, he's clad in leather leather vest, but let's let's be honest, it could have been a whole lot worse. They they, they could have easily had him all warriored out with like beads and you know, bone chokers and you know, two tight side braids. But he's not. Uh, he looks just like about 99% of the people that I know, um, the older people that I know. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, how much input Del Birdie had here, um, if he had any at all. But you had to figure maybe it had to be at least some um, because he dresses and he acts like a beach bum. Um, you know, he's not like this wise elder or shaman. And he immediately melts Zach's ignorance about Indians several times in this little exchange here, um, which we're getting ready to listen to it. Um, you know, like instead of Zach asking him, did you learn that beading or weave? He calls it weaving, but he says, did you learn uh, weaving on the reservation? And and incredibly enough to uh, much to Zach's amazement, uh he's a Dodger fan. <laughs> you know what I mean? So um he, he doesn't learn beating at, at, on a reservation. He learns it in a in a class at UCLA and and uh, uh he he likes the Dodgers and, and Zach it's kinda of funny because Zach looks at him like, gosh, this guy has heard of baseball? He knows what baseball is. So um Anyway, except for the uh, few minor details that we we're talking about, the fact that they have him living in a garage and there's probably one too many Native artifacts lying around, I would say this is an overall above average, like a B minus uh, TV portrayal. In fact, I, I, I got to be honest, I'm not sure I can think of a better one right off the top of my head in a sitcom before 1990. Um, but anyway, let's hear all about this from the man himself. Bouja Henry.
0: Hi, I'm Zach Morris from Miss Wentworth's class. Oh,
2: the
1: kid who thinks he's part Indian. Hey, with that blonde hair, you must be from some Malibu surfing tribe. Hang <laughs> ten, dude. you supposed to be an Indian. Why are you wearing a Dodger hat? Well, Because the Raider helmet's too hot. <laughs> where's that picture you're going to oh, give me? It's right here.
0: Oh, he's an Indian, all right. Come on, sit down. Let's wrap. Look, I hate to rush you, Chief Henry, but I really have to go. Oh, the bathroom is down the hall. <laughs> no, see, I have to finish this project so I can train for a track meet. I thought you wanted to know all about this man. Well, not all about him, just enough for a three-minute speech. Oh well, Whoa. I think I got some stuff you can take I'm home to read. Oh great, thanks. Hey, this headband's pretty cool. Did you learn to weave on the reservation? No, UCLA.
1: <laughs> Great Arts and Crafts Department there.
2: Yeah, so this is probably the best part of the episode. Uh, within a few seconds, you know, Bertie is able to diffuse any prior knowledge or misconceptions about natives. Uh, but we're barely able to linger here because we have a story to get to, uh, obviously. So Zach reaches into his back pocket, as you can hear in the clip, and he pulls out that picture of Looking Glass. And there's a few more exchanges of dialogue, like we said, asking him where he learned to weave. He's actually beating, but instead of just correcting him, we'll let that slide. Uh, but Henry realizes that Zach, you know, isn't really interested in knowing his cultural ancestry. Um, so Henry very patronizingly like hands him this giant stack of books, um, telling him that all the great information contained within the pages. And then he kind of like flashes that that gristling, that glistening white grin. And he pats Zach on his little blonde head and just sends him on his merry way. So back at school, uh, Zach immediately goes to the top of the administrative food chain, Mr. Belding. Uh, He's going to complain to him about what's being asked of him. Like, God forbid uh, you do something right. Uh, Further strengthening the impression that athletics trumps education. Belding incredulously did, agrees with, with Morris, so he summons Miss Wentworth to his chambers, and he promises Morris, um, "You'll get that extension on the assignment once he flexes his principal muscle, whatever that means." Um, but inner Miss Wentworth; um, she seems rather surprised to see the young Morris, kind of hidden behind a pile of books. Um, the recognition on her the recognition on her face um, she knows the jig. The jig is up. She knows exactly why she's there before Belding can even spew forth his reasoning or logic uh, for the extension on the assignment. Um, Basically, he's like, oh, geez, Miss Wentworth, the entire school is dependent on him. And that's his principal muscle, so to speak. So Wentworth, to her credit, wholeheartedly disagrees, you know, stating that the real win for Zach is a solid education. And you certainly can't argue that, Belding. So there's so much to be said of Mr. Belding's character here. But again, I'll leave that to those other Saved by the Bell podcasts. Um, Wentworth here, she doesn't back down at all and quickly flaccids Belding's principal muscle um, by telling Zack, you know, nice try, Shea. No way, no play. So after the commercial break, we find the gang uh, loitering once again at the max. And Lisa begs and pleads Zach to complete the assignment. And meanwhile, Jesse like, relentlessly bombards her with like pleas and favors of forgiveness. And there's this exchange between the two that culminates into Jesse calling Slater a bull killer. And he returns the insult by calling her a slave trader. I kid you not, um, he looks at her and says, whatever slave trader... The entire studio audience is not even sure what to do or how to respond to that. So there's kind of like this uncomfortable smattering of like they're not really sure how to respond. Sweet Jesus, that is such a ballsy line of dialogue right there. Um, but to placate the situation, um, Lisa asks Jesse uh, if she wants to go to the mall. And this, of course, pleases um, Spano. But she only agrees to go if she can piggyback Lisa. Thankfully, this exchange is interrupted by Zach when he conveniently finds the same picture of Looking Glass, his Indian ancestor, in a book that Henry had given him. And it turns out for the story's sake, um, that he's a famous chief because after all, uh, aren't we all we're all chiefs or princesses. Lisa, let me buy you a soda to make up for my ancestors. No thanks, I'm not thirsty. I am. Who cares? You weren't a slave (laughs) Are you hungry? How about a
0: nice tossed green salad? How about cooling it? I can't help it. I feel guilty
2: There must be something I can do
0: Hey, tell her to wear a mini skirt to school tomorrow
2: (laughs) Mind your own business, bull killer
0: Hey, that's bull fighter slave trader Alright, Jesse There is one thing you can do for me I have not been to the mall in weeks I will take you there I'll carry you on my back. There's a picture driving Miss Dizzy. (laughs)
2: Okay, well, I actually queued up the wrong uh, clip, but that's okay. (laughs) So anyway, uh, Zach uh, heads back over to Henry's house once he discovers that the the picture uh, of a looking glass in the book. So he goes back over to Henry's house um, to dig up a little bit more information about what he's found. And he walks in the door, but this time he's greeted with the new name uh, Running Zach. And confused, Henry explains. Good morning, I'm running, Zach.
1: Running, Zach, what's your new name? You run, you're Zach, it works.
2: This, of course, I feel is more like a jab at Zach. Um, Of course, there's no, like, naming ceremony or anything of the like. He just kind of, like, says it very tongue-in-cheek. It reminds me of the story that my grandpa told me about my great-grandfather, Mitchell Boudinot, who I talked about on the All My Relations episode, the very first one um, on Skoden Cinema, which, if you haven't heard that episode Push pause, go back, and listen to that one, and then make sure you leave a five star review because not only does it help the podcast, it also makes me feel really good about myself. Um, but he told me this story um, that my great grandfather 's first language was Muskogee, and that my grandfather didn't speak any at all and when he was dating, my grandmother my great grandfather told him that he was going to give him an Indian name when um, my grandfather asked like what what's my what 's my name going to be My great-grandfather replied, uh, Chichibo Fumby. My grandfather was so proud of that name. And when he asked my great-grandfather what it meant, he'd always say something like, uh, it just doesn't sound the same in English. It sounds so much better in Creek." Well, years later, he found out that Chichibo Fumby is Muskogee for stinky butt. So all of those years, they called him stinky butt and he never knew it. (laughs) I just think that's awesome. And I feel Henry's kind of doing the same thing to Zach here. So, Zach kind of like uh, frustratingly grills Henry about not telling him that the man in the picture was a chief. Henry, of course, throws it back in Little Torp's face by saying, well, why would I help you if you weren't going to take it seriously to begin with? He also says something, says something like, "Um, you know, those stories, you won't find any book. So, which begs the question, if Henry knew he wasn't going to find any stories in those books, why did he give Zach like 20 books this, uh, of course, Zach is ready to listen now, and we get the whole story of Whispering Wind.
0: Why didn't you tell me my ancestor was a famous chief? Oh, you weren't ready to listen. Well, I know, but I'm ready now. Darn, I was just going to go to the beach. This, <laughs> yes, Chief Henry, it'd mean a lot to me.
1: All right. Sit down. Now, you're not going to find any of these stories in a book. You see, your great-great-great-grandfather was a warrior in the Nez Perce tribe under the mighty Chief Joseph. He was a brave man.
0: What was his name?
1: Whispering Wind. And like the wind, his presence was strongly felt, but seldom heard. Now, like you running, Zach, your people ran, too. Oh, not for trophies. They ran to preserve their way of life, which became harder and harder when more of them were getting killed in battle with a white man. This is such a big country. Why couldn't the white man and the Indians get along? Well, why can't the lion get along with the zebra? Why can't the Arabs get along with the Israelis? And why can't I get along with my ex-wife? <laughs> Come here, running, Zach. <laughs> now, this is a symbol of your tribe. Did you make this? Last night. I knew you'd be back. <laughs> this is for you.
0: For me? Thanks. Well, I guess you got enough for your report now. Yeah, I do. But
1: I'd like to hear some more. Well, come on along. I'll tell you how Whisper and Wind helps save your people.
2: Okay, yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, some good, most inf- misinformation. Uh, but first he says the man in the picture uh, was Nez Perce, which is true. He also said that he served under Chief Joseph, which is also pseudo-true. As we discussed earlier, he served alongside Chief Joseph, not under him. Um, But then he says the man's name is Whispering Wind. Um, The man in the photo we now know is Looking Glass. So I have no idea other than maybe Whispering Wind uh, fits the audience's ideas of, of Brave Warrior names much better than Looking Glass does. But why not just use his real name? Um, I'm kind of theorizing that maybe the show's creators were trying to avoid tying any actual history to a fictional character. But if that's the case, they shouldn't use a picture of a, a real person to begin with. Who knows? I don't know. Uh, I also don't quite get the metaphor that Henry uses about why zebras and lions can't get along. Yeah. Uh, I kind of think that we know why lions attack zebras. I don't think it has anything to do with them not getting along. It's just about survival. So that makes zero sense. And then worse yet, why the lion about the Israelis and the Arabs? Uh <laughs> This episode is literally all over the the map here. Um, I could keep going, but let's just move on, right? Um, so surprisingly, uh, as you can hear in the clip, um, Zach is hungry for some more information. So he grabs his boogie board and the two head out the door. The next day in class, we see that idiot Screech again. He's giving this 40-second presentation about his family And he's sort of talking in this faux Italian accent that would literally make uh, Mario and Luigi just shit with rage. Um, He's going on and on about how he comes from this long line of lovers and international spies. Hold up, hold up. Didn't Wentworth just reprimand Zack on his BS presentation, but she totally buys into Screech's story? I mean, what gives Wentworth? The dude has no pictures. He has no books. He has no note cards, no papers he's reading from. He's just up there like word vomiting, this equally racist, I might add, propaganda um, as Wentworth sort of smiles and nods in amusement. He even at the end of it forces himself upon a few females in class, um, grabbing their hand and kisses them, including Wentworth. Uh, she freaking grilled Zach just a few scenes prior, you know, like asking what tribe he was from, where was the tribe located, et cetera, et cetera. But she doesn't even ask screech the most fundamentally prodding questions about his heritage. It's almost as if she's just impressed that he was able to just string together more than two sentences of semi coherence. Um, so she gives him like this pity grade. Um, but she gives him an, a, a freaking a, I mean, this guy is nothing more than this mentally bereft shit clown, but he gets a freaking A in this class for this assignment. All right, get that idiot off my screen. (laughs) Okay, hold your breath, because for the next 40 seconds, we get to see one of the most racist, stereotypical depictions of a Native American ever to grace a children's television program. And yeah, I have seen... Uh, Peter Pan Uh, I have seen Pocahontas but let's say um, this is probably just as bad building a wee bit attention Miss Wentworth begins asking about Zach okay Zach you're up Zach 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 are you here like the whole class starts looking around like they have no idea who she's talking about Um, so there's like this collective gasp either from the class or the studio audience I can't really tell but enters running Zach. He's clad in buckskin leggings and shirt. He's got a bone breastplate around his neck. He's sporting like this full cheap gift shop headdress. He even applied war paint to his face for like the maximum effect. I'm surprised he wasn't holding a peace pipe. Um, Thinking that he's sort of goofing off again, Lisa falls back in her chair and exclaims, great, there goes the track meet. But ever the Zach Morris fan, uh, uh, Miss Wentworth sort of settles the class and Zach begins his actual presentation. My name is Running Zach.
0: (laughs) I am a direct descendant of the Nez Perce tribe who once lived peacefully in Oregon's Wallowa Valley. My people were forced off their land so settlers could mine for gold. After fighting to keep their home, the tribe led by great Chief Joseph tried retreating to safety in the mountains but the army pursued them rather than watch his people die chief joseph surrendered he said i am tired of fighting our chiefs are killed our children are freezing my people have no food my heart is sad from where the sun now stands i will fight no more forever Very
1: good,
0: Zach. Before this project, I knew nothing about my heritage. I didn't even care. Now I know, and I'm proud.
2: Yeah, so there you go. Uh, Again, sort of a lot of half truths. you know, he talked about the the Nez Perce living peacefully in Walla Walla Valley. That was all true. Um, he definitely skipped over Looking Glass um, in Chief Joseph's speech there, towards the end. But again, it's neither here nor there at this point, right? Um, after the presentation, though, the gang comes over to like congratulate him again, and Miss Whitworth's like beaming so proudly while Belding's like nervously pacing back and forth, like eating his fingernails down to the quick, just outside the classroom door. Well, uh, Wentworth delivers the news that Zach passed so now he can compete in the track tournament because really, wasn't that, isn't this what it's all about? I mean, it's not really about Zach learning about his heritage. It's all about getting to run in that track meet. So Belding is so pleased that he tells Zach that he loves him and he gives him like this big hug. But he quickly kind of realizes this faux pas and he doesn't want to give anyone the uh, reason to question his heterosexuality. Uh, Belding like quickly pulls away and, you know, like, Deepens his voice and like sternly and like, congratulations, son. Uh, like mainly uh, shakes Zach's hand. So now, flash forward to the pep rally, um, and Zach wants to call Henry to tell him the good news. So he drops a quarter in a payphone, which is a relic from the past, and without even questioning what's going on, um, Zach discovers that Henry has died. That's right, relatives without any kind of explanation or precedent, uh, without any prior knowledge about Henry being sick, nothing. Henry's dead. And then that synth fu- that, you know that synth flute music that you heard plays us out. And if you're still playing the stereotypical bingo you know at home, grab the dauber and daub over vanishing American um, because all Indians are, are dead uh, in the eyes of these writers. So the third act begins at the pep rally at the max, Uh, and and again, again, not to trail off on a tangent or anything, but I've always wondered where in relation the max is to the school. I mean, it has to be in like this adjacent parking lot, right? I mean, I don't think kids would be allowed to just leave campus without a permission slip from the parents. But we're talking about the 1990s here. I mean, hell, in the 90s, we'd get dropped off without cell phones to places like Metallica concerts or uh, the State Fair, Woodland Hills Mall, Promenade, or Eastland, Uh, Big Splash, Golf World, the movies. Our parents didn't care. They just wanted us out of the house and out of their hair. But anyway, um, at this supposed pep rally, there's no real school spirit here because only about a dozen students show up. And like five of the 12 are like your normal Bayside gang that we're all familiar with and while I'm thinking about it I, I don't remember any kind of pep rally for track and field but it's been over 30 years since I've been in high school so maybe it was different than I remember because uh full disclosure I didn't go to pep rallies either they would let us out to class and I'd head straight from my car or I'd go with the other potheads to the spray room over in Mr. England's wood shop but anyway um were beat over the head once again about how Zach is the only person who can bring victory to this fledgling team. Um, and Jesse introduces him to like this thunderous applause. He's a no show. So now the gang really starts busting his balls about not being there. And they immediately jump to the conclusion that he's just quit the team. So why would he spend all of the time doing the presentation that they just watched and they congratulated him on, Why would he go through all of that to not participate in this stupid track meet? It makes no sense to Kelly Kapowski either. I mean, she's savvy when it comes to knowing Zach. So she always comes to his defense and she says something like, you know, he wouldn't miss this for the world. So something big must have come up. And so she heads out the door to get some answers. Uh, Side note, when she's leaving, there's like this creepy out, like old, out-of-place guy in the background. I mean, we rarely see adults, you know, other than teachers like Mr. Dewey or like heavyset driver's ed teachers. So when there's like this random old dude just like hanging out at the max with no explanation and with these teenagers in track suits, it's just sort of jarring a little bit, especially the way he kind of watches her and trails her with his eyes as, he, as she leaves. So, now we're back in Miss Wentworth's class, and that synthesizer flute music is back, and it's playing over Zach as he's grieving the loss of a man that he spent an afternoon with. I mean, <laughs> let's let's be honest. He's completely distraught over someone he doesn't really know. He literally just met him the day before. Um, so there's no words spoken during this whole scene until Kelly comes like barreling in shouting like Zach, I've been looking all over for you. And like this clearly distraught Zach Morris explains to the crushing, or he delivers like the crushing news of Henry's passing. Um, he describes this as being the first time that he's ever lost anyone close to him. So, uh, that must've been some afternoon at the beach is all I can say. Eh? Um, even Miss Wentworth is broken up, uh, once again, sort of, um, uh, lending some some credence to to my theory that that she was a snag um but anyway i think there's more to that story than that little home and harlot is letting on but that's neither here nor there but anyways uh kelly tells zach you know just go home and rest up for the big day to which zach replies he's just too shook to run um, but other than like Slater's beloved pet chameleon, Artie, this has to be the only other moment in the show's history where they deal with death. Um, not to mention, like, there's only six minutes left in the episode. So, how in the hell are we going to wrap this thing up? So, now we're in Zach's bedroom and he's like tossing and turning in his bed and he's unable to sleep. And then a scene right out of the stereotype playbook, the ghost of Chief Henry. Uh excuse me Henry I'm not going to call him chief henry anymore. The ghost of Henry appears before Zack. Um he's wearing a white suit and like this turquoise necklace. I mean at least they didn't put him in like a loincloth or buckskins. Um Henry tells Zack, you know, that he's been watching him and that he saw that he got an A on the class assignment. Um and Henry asks him, you know, are you ready for the big track meet tomorrow? But, but Zach kind of tells him I'm not running. Uh this of course uh gives him, you know, Henry gives him the old what for. And then he sort of leaves, uh, disappearing uh, like a fart in the wind.
1: Hey, Sleeping Zack! Wake up!
0: What? Chief Henry, you're alive? Oh,
1: I'm still dead. You know what? Life is a lot less stressful when you're dead. Why'd you have to die? Well, they don't give you much choice up there. Am I dead too? No, well, you're alive. I'm just here in your dream.
0: Well, hey, I never got to tell you how my class presentation went today.
1: I was watching. You got an A. Hey, are you ready for the big meet tomorrow? I hear Valley
0: shaking in their Nikes. I'm not running. Ever since you died, it doesn't seem to matter. Sounds like you've got a problem. Oh, I gotta go.
1: I'm being fitted for wings. (laughs) Goodbye, running sack. Goodbye, chief. And thanks for all you've done for me. Rest well tonight. And remember, the answer to your problem is in your hands.
2: And what do you suppose also happened in that dream sequence? Well, Henry Zig, uh Henry Ziggs. I can't even talk today. Uh, Henry gives Zack a message on a handmade headband. Um, he unfolds this thing. He, he wakes up. Let me say this. He, he wakes up, and he's holding this beaded headband, presumably made by Henry. And he opens it up, and it has the words on it that says, Beat Valley. Um, first, uh, I'm assuming that... Um, you know, Henry didn't fully practice Nez Perce ways if he's getting fitted for wings in heaven. Um, I mean, it's completely plausible that Henry could have been a Christian or, or a native Christian blend. Um, it subverts expectations, though, to not have Henry sort of mouth these platitudes about, uh, oh, great spirit or like happy hunting grounds. Um, the whole Christianity debate, I'm going to leave that for another time. Um But this does leave credence to the trope of like the mystical Indian in the Hollywood narrative. So we have done a lot of checking with our pens today. Um, In fact, um, we also have a character that's having a vision. So like in a matter of like three minutes, um, there's like four things or three things we've checked on the list in an episode that's only 22 minutes long. I got to be honest, I'm starting to get exhausted and the pen is starting to literally run out of ink. So the big day of the meet is finally here. The entire school is bummed out about Zack being a no show. And then Belding being Belding, he's like trying his darndest to like rally the troops. And he kind of gives him his best Newt Rockne speech this, you know, that he could possibly deliver Um, something along the lines about trying hard and let's go win one for the Zacker or whatever it was. Um, whatever he's babbling about, though, must have worked because, like a phoenix rising from the ashes, we see this Cocksure Zach Morris confidently, like, stroll in behind him on the stairway uh, when this school sees him. They, uh, explode with like cheers and applause. Um, and so, you know, Belding kind of whips his neck around. He's like, what are you doing here? And, and Zach replies, well, I'm here to run the mile, sir. Now there's nothing that would have delighted this man more than that moment. And I think he's going to take all of the credit for it. But, um, with Belding leading the charge, the entire school sort of goose steps, like right out the door. Um, Even the creepy old guy, he's back um, from the Max. Remember him? Um, He's back and he's in the school for some reason. Again, we have no idea who this man is, but he follows the kids out as well. Everybody leaves the school but Zach, of course. I mean, he lingers behind so he can give us the explanation about his sudden change of heart. And he tells Kelly he got some good advice from an old friend and he hands her the Beat Valley headband. And he kind of looks towards the heavens and he clutches his pearls or he clutches his headband, excuse me. And he looks up to the heavens and he, he says, you know, like, this one's for you, chief. And the outro music swells and they both beam with this overwhelming native pride. And out the door they go hand in hand and they never mention it ever again. So yeah, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. I don't think there's any more damage that I could possibly do that hasn't already been done or already been said. I don't know. But I think our first TV party here was a pretty big success. I mean, what do you guys think? Um, but it's, sadly, it's time to go home now. So uh, I don't care. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here anymore. So make sure y'all pick up all your trash and your cups and your, your, your flaming Flamers bags. Cigarette butts, smoky. I see you over there in a the corner. You are gonna get that cup picked up. Um, but I appreciate you guys coming out and hanging with me for a little bit. Uh, we'll definitely do this again because I, I honestly had a lot of fun with this one, um, even though I uh, was uh, pissed off during half of it. Um, I'm just kidding. But if you want to check out the episode, uh, this particular episode, I say by the bell, um, it's on Hulu. And if you don't have Hulu, just hit me up and I'll give you all my ex's credentials. Nah, I'm just playing. I'm just kidding, I'm kidding. But uh, it's, I, it is on YouTube, so um, you don't really need to have Hulu. Um, if you have any thoughts or comments, make sure you send them my way. Uh, I have a smoke signal you can just email me at. Um, it's scoden uh, underscore cinema at gmail.com. The uh, email address again is scoden underscore cinema at gmail.com you can also find me on insta it's just at scoden cinema i'm also on facebook uh, and i'm also on all the things i'm not really on twitter because i just don't have that much to say but um, i love to hear from y'all and if you haven't already go subscribe to the podcast and make sure you leave a a good review because it really does help us out and i appreciate it Uh, so stay tuned though because i got a lot of exciting stuff in the pipeline i really do um, i got a collab on the horizon, that's right. Um, we're also going to be talking about the insane uh, Graham Greene flick called Clear Cut. And if you haven't seen Clear Cut, pause this, stop what you're doing, go to YouTube um, and, and, and watch that movie. Because that's going to be next. We're going to talk about that one. Um, I'm also hoping to sit down with a, a local filmmaker here um, named Jeremy Charles And we're going to be discussing his amazing short film called Toju. Um, If you're a fan of apocalyptic, you know, into the world films um, with a native twist, uh, Toju is right down your alley. Um, But before we go, I want to shout out um, a local native-run restaurant here in Bixby, uh, Indian Territory. It's called uh, Johnson's Stepping Stone Cafe. It's right off Armstrong Road. Uh, every Wednesday is Indian Taco Day So drop one Or drop in and pick one up um, And for you repeat customers Or maybe even for like a maybe a $50 tip Old George might take you in the back And, and let you pick out your fried bread Like you would a lobster uh, in a tank At one of them fancy restaurants nah, I'm just kidding uh, But seriously it is, it's great food And uh, if you can't go on Wednesdays I highly recommend that jalapeno fried chicken Because god dang it's going to light you up son Um, But all right, that's it. I'll holler at y'all later. Peace.